called How do I prove to the world that I'm here and that I'm a man, that I'm not a little kid anymore? And I'll only be young once. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. You are now listening to Right Ways Radio, hosted by Journeyman, amplifying the voices of youth development and modern rites of passage. Hello and welcome to Rightways Radio, hosted by Journeyman. I'm your co-host, Alex. And I'm your co-host, Nikki Wilkes. Tonight we're joined here by Dominique Davis, a.k.a. Coach Dom, the Executive Director of Community Passageways, based in Seattle. Dominique, welcome, and thank you for joining us. I'd love to hear a bit about what you guys do at Community Passageways and how you engage the youth in your community. Okay, um... We have a model that's based off prevention, diversion, incarceration, and reentry. We want to break the school to prison pipeline, or should I even say the cradle to prison pipeline? Hmm. So we we created a new pipeline. You can't break something and get rid of something without replacing it, right? So we want to p- replace it with a a pipeline that is about healing, and it's about community healing community. We're three or four generations in easily of, of, of victims of a system, an oppressive system. This oppressive system revolves around the prison industrial complex, right? Around economics, around education, or should I say miseducation. So when I um, realized how deep-rooted this system has affected our people or how deep-rooted the system goes into affecting the the, um, underserved and marginalized people of our communities, especially people of color, I realized that we have to come up with a system to not just replace the pipeline, but we have to replace the system. Mind you, that sounds like a huge task. And it's a huge vision. And usually when I talk to people about it, they kind of look at me like, that's just way too big. But I realize that if your vision isn't so big that people don't believe you can do it, then it's not really a big vision. It's not a real vision. Your vision has to be so big that you can't do it by yourself. And then when somebody says you can't do it, that's the vision that you need to follow. And that's the way I look at it. So right now, Community Passageways is all about working in these four sectors. In prevention, we are working in schools to be proactive. And we're, working with, we're doing peacemaking and healing circles in the schools. We're, we're being a buffer between kids getting expelled and suspended out of school because we know when a kid gets expelled or suspended, the chances of that kid brushing against the uh, criminal justice system skyrockets. So we're a buffer there. So these kids that are looking at being expelled or suspended, they get pushed towards us, and we give that kid a second opportunity to get it right through mentorship, peacemaking, healing circles, through opportunities, um, through talking and speaking with family. Uh, trying to uh, build a, a process for this kid to get get back on track. Then we also work in the communities. We do community outreach. Like just the other day, actually, just they, a couple of days ago, I was sitting in my car down in um, one of the hoods around my close to my hood, and there was a group of young men walking up the street. 
And I recognize one of them. He's in a wheelchair. He got shot in the back a couple of times a few years ago. And he's been in a wheelchair ever since. So I, I knew it was him and he was with his, his homies. And they're a very well-known, um, they're a part of a very well-known, pretty big gang in our neighborhood. And so I just jumped out the car. I didn't know the other brothers he was with, but I knew him. And, you know, he gave me a big hug and he was like, man, I miss you, whatever. We're just kind of catching up. And he was almost in tears because he knows that I was trying to help him for the last few years. I've been trying to get him on track, but he's just out here kind of lost. And so I started talking to him and his homies. And, you know, one's 28, the other one was 29, 22. He's like 23. So I'm talking to these dudes in their 20s and late 20s. And I'm like, look, man, this is not the life, bro. You guys are out here wasting your time. You guys are almost 30 damn years old. You're going to keep doing this? You know? So we're just, that's the kind of stuff I do. So I'm giving them my cards. They're going to meet me at my office coming up next, this, uh, next week. I'm going to start talking to them one-on-one, having meetings with them, try to get them to think and focus in a different direction and try to get them plugged into some internships, some apprenticeships. You know, but first we got to go through a process of changing their mindset. And they were, when they were talking to me, they're saying, man, you're right. I don't want to do this no more. I want to take care of my kids. I don't want to be out here like this no more. A lot of you guys just don't want to be out here. They just don't get the opportunity to. So Community Passageways does outreach. We do street outreach like that. And then um, inside Diversion, we are diverting cases out of the criminal justice system. We are representing young men and women in the courtrooms. We are sitting down, working with them, helping them get back to school, get jobs, helping them graduate high school, get into college. Uh, we got a couple of kids where we help them start and get their business license and start their own businesses. We got kids that are uh, working at the University of Washington as employees, working at Seattle Central College. I mean, I could just go on and on, but we divert them out of the courtroom and get them back into the community. We work in partnership with the prosecuting attorney's office, which is an outstanding prosecuting attorney's office in King County. I can't say more. I can't give them enough kudos because their door is wide open for me to come in and just sit down and debate cases with them, and, and, and they are willing and ready to do something different. I just got to convince them sometimes. But then I got the King County defense attorneys that's working with me hand-in-hand. Hand. I'm working with judges. So we're working on cases of young people to stop them from going through life with a felony on their back or at least stop them from experiencing the prison system. And so we divert them out, and we help them get back on their feet and get what they need. We're also going inside the, the jails and penitentiaries and working with young people inside. We're doing peacemaking and healing circles because the whole thing, everybody has trauma. 99% of these kids are traumatized. We just did a, a community peace circle on Tuesday with about 30 young people. Well, about 30 people and about 25, 20, 20 to 25 young people. In that room, we started talking about forgiveness. Then we started talking about fatherlessness. And in the whole room, even with the adults out of all 30 people, Everybody in there had an issue with fatherlessness. Everybody, the whole room. There wasn't one person in that room that didn't have some issue with their father being in prison, abusive, an alcoholic, a drug addict, beating their mom, beating them, whatever, break, molestate, whatever you want to say. It was all in the one room. It was amazing to me to see 100% of the people in one room all with some, dealing with some of the same trauma. We deal with that trauma. We go inside the prisons and deal with that trauma. We sit down. I'm sitting down in a circle with a group of little girls inside juvenile detention, having a circle with them, 13, 14, 15-year-old little girls, sitting there in their, their jail jumpsuits and flip-flops. Beautiful young girls, just babies, having a circle with them. And I'm talking to them, and I'm, and I'm like, I'm talking to them like I would be talking to my own daughter. I have four daughters. 
So I'm talking to him like I would be talking to my daughters. And so I told him, I, I'm telling him, you guys are queens. You guys are beautiful. God made you to be beautiful and great. Never let nobody abuse you. He, you are gifts from God and blah, blah, blah. Don't let these men and young boys abuse you. You don't have to accept that. And I'm talking to them like that. And I'm telling them, and I said, I'm going to talk to you like I talk to my daughters. They're all crying. I got 12, 13 little girls in my face crying at the same time. And I'm like, oh, my God, what did I say wrong? And a little girl says, looks at me and says, nobody's ever said we were beautiful before. We were just in ourselves talking about that earlier. Like, I've never been called beautiful by a man before. I was like, wow. Did your dad never? She said, I never had a dad. And then another little girl said, please talk to us like you're our, like we're your daughters. We've never had a dad before. Please talk to us like we're your daughters. They're crying, saying this to me. Then another little girl says, you're the closest thing I ever had to a dad. And I'm like, what? I only seen this little girl maybe three times, four times, you know? They're saying we remember everything you said. And so this is, it broke my heart that we were taking traumatized children who have been through trauma, who have been victims of adults, and then they go out and commit a crime because they've been hurt and victimized and beaten and abused and sex trafficked, and then they commit a crime. And then what we do is take them same traumatized kids because they commit some kind of little crime, and we lock them up and traumatize them even more without any, anyway. So we go inside, we try to go through healing processes. We try to say, when you get out, come see us. When you get out, we want to help you. We want to help you get on your feet. We want to help you have a new family. We want to, you know, that kind of stuff. So we do a lot. Of, that's the kind of work. I mean, in a nutshell, I could go on and on about the work we do because we do so many different things, but that's what we do in a nutshell, bro. Thank you. I, um, I'm really touched with all of the examples you give, but uh, both Alex and I just had to give each other a glance as you as you talk about this group of girls, um, and you know to be able to make more of an impact in two to three sessions of just you know in your eyes barely barely scraping the surface, and to have them give that reflection of like you're the closest thing to a dad I ever have, that just puts it all into perspective, like how how absent that role of just a grounded male. Um, granted father figure, just a, a consistent person, so many people are missing out on. And, you know, you touched on something else that feels that feels important, and this it's this cycle of trauma, right? So it's like if we don't address and, and look at our wounds and, and be willing to open up about that and do it in a safe space in a healing circle with, you know, with the support of our community, then we're bound to repeat that. And, um, you know, I, I know for me, like, dedicating myself to youth work was was really uh, a product of me looking at my own experience as a young person and being like, what was I missing? You know, like, what did I have? What did I not have? Like, where was my, where was my trauma? What was I struggling with in that moment? And, you know, what did I need that I definitely didn't have? And in our, you know, in our first meeting, I, I feel like I, I got just a glimpse of, of the adolescent Dom. And I'm curious if you'd be willing to kind of give us a little more uh, of a picture in, inside your world when you were a teen, like what was it like growing up for you? What What's a little bit about your story and, and maybe how that kind of led you into the work that you're doing today? Wow. I hope you're all ready for that. <laughs> uh, put on your seatbelt. Um, yeah, my, my teen. So uh, I left home at around 14 years old. Um, I was put out of the house around 14. I didn't, I didn't really have a father. In my life, my real dad wasn't didn't participate in my life, and so uh, I had a stepfather 
that I didn't really get along with because I thought I was grown, you know, because I was always a man in the house, but he, this man comes in out of nowhere. I, I mean, from the time I was a little kid, I started smoking weed at seven years old, eight years old. I started drinking around 11. Um, started stealing and thieving around 11 and 12 years old. Stealing cars around 12 years old, 13. Selling weed around 12 years old, 13. Um, you know, breaking and entering, robbing people, houses, whatever it was to make money at 12, 13 years old. So I started very young. Um, got put out of my house around 13, 14 years old and had an 18-year-old girlfriend and I had enough money worth. We were able to move into an apartment. So I had a one-bedroom apartment when I was uh, about 14, 15, about 15 years old. Had a couple, you know, moving around here and there. So I had my own place. Bought my first car at 14 years old for $300. Um, I was just out here, man. I was out here. So the people that I looked up to were the pimps, the hustlers, and the drug dealers. They had the nice cars. They had the jewelry. They had the money. And and uh, I just said, you know what? I want to be like them. I want to have money like that. I want those kind of cars. And um, I just went to work on that and started doing it, man. And you see, I was... I started buying cars and having money. And uh, uh, my so my childhood was fast, man. It was fast. Like, I didn't get to be, I didn't really have a childhood. I was, I've been paying rent and paying bills since I was 14. So being a child, man, just, you know, that, that was very brief, a brief moment in my life. A lot of guns, a lot of bullets, a lot of death and a lot of destruction. A lot of drugs and a lot of money. A lot of women. That was how my life was, man. My teeth through my teen years. I was, I was a really good athlete. Played football really, really well. Um, Could have went to, I was getting letters from colleges all over the nation. I just uh, didn't go to school. I went to school to get good enough grades just to stay on the football field. But other than that, you know, I wasn't planning on graduating. I didn't know I was going to live to see 18, much less 21, much less 30. All my friends was getting killed out. I had lost like three or four friends uh, by the time I graduated high school. So it was just a really fast life, really crazy life, um, really wild teenage years. And so what what made me really get into this work was, I, and, and don't get it wrong, I spent 30 years in the streets easy. You know, I even went to I even went away to college on a football scholarship to try to change my life, but but. You're just taking somebody that's traumatized, which I didn't know what trauma was. I didn't know what post-traumatic stress disorder was. I didn't know none of that. I, I do. This was just everyday existence for me. There was squares and there was gangsters, and that's all it was, right? And I, was, I knew what I was. So when I went to school, I wanted to be an athlete. I wanted to be a square. I wanted to start going to school and, take, and stop doing what I was doing. But once you get there and you run out of money and you don't have nobody to send you no money and you're hungry and you're, going, and you're broke, you know, you got a car, you got an apartment, you got bills. The school only could take care of you so much. You know, next thing I know, I was hustling again. I was working these females and doing what I was doing to make money. And so um, I really didn't take advantage of, the, of my football, the football career that I could have took off in. I could have really excelled at. Uh, came back home and got back in the drug game and worked my way up the ladder to the point where I was doing some, moving some weight. And that kept me in the streets for a very long time. But throughout that process, I I started coaching football, basketball, track. 
I would um, buy. I have AAU teams. I have football teams. I would buy my kids uniforms and helmets and shoulder pads, and I would, you know, treat them to this, treat them to that, because I was making money. So I had all these kids. I really always had a heart for kids. I have my own sons, so I got to coach all three of my sons through all their stages of their life on all their football teams, basketball teams, and track teams. So I was always coaching in the neighborhood. So I was known as a mentor and a leader in the neighborhood, coaching kids. But at the same time, I was in these streets. And so for me to start telling these kids, hey, man, you need to be in school, man. You don't need to be out here on these streets. As they get older and start going into high school, I'm preaching to them about what they need to be doing. And some of them will be like, no, because we want to be like you. We want to have that kind of car you got. We want that kind of money. We know, you know, we want those women we want. I'm like, man, I became a, a, a product of the – I'm the same dude that I was looking at when I wanted to be – who the guys I wanted to be like, I ended up being those guys because these young kids. And that really started – making me think you know so my teenage years man were pretty wild pretty crazy uh there's a lot of stuff i can't even remember probably because i buried it and chose not to so a lot of my guys are just getting out the penitentiary from doing 25 plus years and uh i just had a guy get out the penitentiary that i was that i was friends with back when we were teenagers and uh i hadn't seen him in a very long time of course we were hanging out and he was like man remember when i did this and did that, blah, blah, and you started shooting at us, and some of them, like, I started shooting at you? I was like, man, I don't even remember that. He was like, yeah, man, I remember you tried to kill us, you know. I was like, dude, I don't even remember that, you know. I'm going, wow, it's crazy. Like, this stuff, I can't even recall that bit. That was really crazy stuff that I probably did that I don't even remember because every single day was a day of survival, you know. So my high school my high school years, my teenage years were wild, and then I, I decided I don't want any kid to ever have to go through any of the stuff that I had to do to survive. I don't want any kid to ever go without. Now, mind you, my mom was always there for me. I always had uncles and aunties always there for me. I had people there for me, but I was very hard-headed. I was a knucklehead, and I wanted to get it myself and have my own, and I wanted it in abundance. Anything that I needed and wanted through my younger years, I got. But So every time I see kids that didn't have what they needed when I was out here hustling, I would buy complete strangers kids shoes or clothes or when kids would come and they didn't have what they needed for sports i'd buy them whatever or pay their fees to play or i'd do whatever i could because i had a heart for kids and then i'd get out on the block and try to get these kids to stop being out here hustling man i was tired of going to these young people's funerals after they go through one of my programs next thing i know somebody's in prison or in court going to prison or or in, in a funeral home you know in a casket so i started trying to just do the best i could i didn't know what to do so i just Whenever I was riding down the street or out here doing whatever I was doing, I'd see my young people and I'd get out the car and go talk to them, man, and, and get in their ear and get in their head. And, you know, next thing I know, I got a couple of little gangsters crying on my shoulder because I done hit some soft spaces in their heart. And I was like, I want to start a program. I want to do something. But I didn't know what to do. I didn't have no idea. And I was asking a few people around, asking around. And next thing I know, some opportunities opened up and I ended up doing this work and now I'm doing it professionally. But my, my whole goal is to make sure no kid ever goes through what me and my homies went through. I can't even count how many of my friends are dead right now or how many of my friends went to the penitentiary. I can't even count, bro. I'm glad I put my seatbelt on, Dom. Thank you for sharing that story. That's quite a ride you've been on, man. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, to me, it really sounds like stepping into that role of coach and mentor was something that really changed the course of your life and 
you know, Nikki and I have experienced, a lot of people seem to have this notion that to be a mentor, that you have to be perfect, that you have to have all your stuff together and really be on top of things. And what we're realizing is that it doesn't matter how you show up, that every person has a role uh, to support young people, whether that's them working through their own trauma or, or starting to shine in their greatness, but that each person has a story to share that can benefit young people. And, and it's reciprocal, right? Like the people that show up for mentors for us, they're getting just as much out of it as the young people are. And they're really held to a higher standard. They have to be the leader. They have to be the role model. And we see that in some of our teenage guys that work with younger boys, um, really stepping up in, in that way as a mentor. And I'd love to hear you talk about the importance of, of mentoring and how that can help people that are also struggling uh, to step up and be in that leadership role for, for the younger generation. Bro, it is amazing. I love that question. Thank you for that. It's, it's amazing. Like I said, I got homeboys that's coming out of the penitentiary that just got out, and I got homeboys that been out for 10, 12 years. But when you put them in a position of leadership, and responsibility over some young people's lives, it changes the way they look at themselves. It makes them feel like I have a purpose. I have a reason to do the right thing. You know, I, I, it's incredible to watch the dynamics of these young people meeting their, uh, a, a community ambassador slash mentor and connecting with them and understanding that, wow, they've been there and done that. They've been there and done that, and they care about me not going there and doing the same thing that they've done. And watching the, the di- dynamics of that relationship grow. Like, we don't even, my, my young people in my program do not call our guys mentors or, or community ambassadors. They call them big bro. We call each other big bro and little bro. This happened organically. I didn't put that in place on, but the, the young people did that. They started doing that. The, the young ladies, the young ladies call me um, um, their uncle, you know. Two of them want to call me dad. I told them, no, you can't call me dad. My daughters might get mad about that. Because <laughs> <laughs> my daughters are a little territorial, so they might, they might get a little upset about that. But two of them want, but so they, we, they, the young people have took the language and it adopted family to the language. Where they don't, they don't look at us as community ambassadors and mentors. They look at us as big brothers and uncles. It's crazy the the way it just it just tells you and speaks volumes of how connection um, is when they see somebody that looks like them that's walked down the same street that they walked down that understands their plight, understands their issues, have been through the same things and have came out of it and have changed the way they operate, have changed their mindset. And want to be better people. When you see that man, and they see it, they just—it just—it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to watch how the mentors just—they latch on to these kids, and, and they want to do right by the kids. It's—it's just—it blows my mind, man, to, to see some of these brothers. I got people calling me from the penitentiary right now that's still in the pen that calls me from the penitentiary, like, "Hey, man, D, I've been—I seen you on TV, man." I seen you on TV, or I seen you. I read about you in the newspaper. Man, I want to come do what you're doing. I want to. I want to do what you're doing. When I get out in six months, I want to come meet with you. I want to work with you. You know, I get this all the time. I get letters. I get phone calls. 
it's been crazy, man, to to just to be part of what I mean, just to watch these guys. It gives them energy. Basically, it just gives them energy to do the right thing. It makes them not want to go out and come back to the streets and get back into the life because they feel like I need to be responsible. I want to take these these young people under my wing, and I want to show them that they can make it. Powerful, man. I think where where I was kind of feeling feeling this venture toward was like, you know, being able to engage uh, not just youth but like adults who whether whether they're just getting out of jail or they're you know kind of in their inner jail, you know, they're they're lost in life. And uh, I know a lot of the guys who seem to gravitate towards wanting to work with us so far. Now they come from a group um, called the Mankind Project, and uh, it's something that both Alex and I have done. They do like a modern male initiation and um, men's work circles, and just a lot of good work is done. And you know what what I've observed is there's a lot of guys who you know middle aged guys, you know, kind of wondering like, well, what am I really doing? You know, like I got this job, I got like a family, um, but something's missing, and you know, the purpose is, is that common thread that I'm hearing. Like they have no purpose. And, uh, what I hear from some of our mentors is like showing up in a, in a circle of youth and, and just hearing the realness and the rawness of what it's like. Um, and feeling like they actually have power again, like they actually have influence and there's a reason for their story. All of a sudden their experiences that they've maybe stuffed away for super long time, um, are relevant again and they actually, you know, have, have a value and they're having a real impact. And, you know, just to see that, that I would say, see the, see the light, the light up factor of, you know, not just the youth, but again, like these adults who, you know, who all of a sudden feel like they have a place in community again. Um, and it speaks to the intergenerational nature of this work of like the need, you know, for young people to be sitting in circle with older people and, and to just get those those connections and that and that storytelling uh, flowing, uh, and it yeah. it's so beautiful when it happens, man. And and as we know, yeah. you know, when when the circle is set, it kind of just takes on this magic of its own. Like it, mm. it it just you know it sets the container and the stage and and the performance begins, and it's so beautiful and unscripted and and mm. like you said, sometimes we'll be sitting in a room and. We might start out with thirty different people, you know, looking around like, yeah, we're we're not even that similar. And by the end of it, you realize everyone's actually got a piece of the same exact trauma. Yes. Everyone's got yeah. a piece of the same story that we're holding, and and that's so healing when we can touch that and 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 begin to work with that together. Mm, mm, um, mm. and so this this circle theme comes up a lot. I know, you know, working in school districts and and been, you know, I've been through trainings and symposiums and consultants coming into our district talking about restorative justice and trauma informed teaching and mentoring and all these buzzwords. Right. And, um, you know, I, I, I believe, and I know that there are a lot of folks out there like doing, doing really good work with it. And, and I also judge that there's a big misunderstanding and, and what I've seen is actually like a kind of a resistance of, of some people who, you know, might be, they, they might be pretty well served by a traditional education system. You know, they might not be the most oppressed people in, in, you know, in the system. And there's kind of this deference and this kind of like sarcasm around, Ooh, they're just going to do a restorative justice circle and everyone's going to go away and be happy. Um, and I hear a lot of doubt about the power and the impact and actually the effectiveness of this work. And, um, 
I don't know if that's been part of your experience, but for me and I think for our audience, it's really important um, to hear, like, you know, what is restorative justice at its best? Like, what does it mean to 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 be restorative, whether that's circle work or doing community work? Um, like, what is restorative justice? Maybe, like, what is it not? And what does it look like when it's really working? Wow. Um what it what it is to me, and I'm, I'm gonna give you my own definition. Um, restorative justice, when it's really what it means and what it looks like. Restorative justice means to me is um, forgiveness and love and healing. Right? It means stop looking at things through a punitive punishment lens and start looking at things through a healing lens, a loving lens. Right? And um. We were able here in King County with the work that we've done and with the circles that people have done through, through the system, system people have done, uh, they, we've had everywhere down from King County execs down to prosecutors, judges, defense attorneys, uh, jail guards, uh, employees, whatever. Everybody, everybody's been going through circles in King County. A ton of people have been going through circles in King County. Not everybody's been, but a lot of people have, especially a lot of the decision makers. So the seeds have been planted. They've had their own experiences. I think that um, through that process, we've been able to take the juvenile justice system, and it has been placed underneath the public health lens. Mm. We're one of the first people, if not the first, because I'm hearing we are the only ones in the nation that has done that and made that move. So now we don't have the juvenile justice system underneath the punitive punishment locked up lens. Now we're putting them in it's a health crisis. So one of the things that I have been able to push, that I've been pushing for in these circles is let's stop calling these young people prisoners, inmates, criminals, whatever label we call and let's start calling them victims. Mm-hmm. If we change the language, it changes the thought process. Restorative justice is seeing somebody that's been traumatized and hurt wanting to help them, not seeing somebody that hurt somebody, and then we punish them and lock them back up because we all know hurt people hurt people. Traumatized people are going to traumatize other people. So restorative justice is not looking at a person for the, the action, but looking at, a person of what, looking at a person and saying what led up to that action. And let's, let's start from there and go into the root causes. Let's restore this kid and let's give this kid justice by restoring this kid. The justice comes by providing options and, and opportunity, love and care, mental health and all that kind of stuff that has to come along with it. So as far as I'm concerned, restorative justice is all about healing. And when it works and what it looks like when it works, I've seen it already. I've seen it working. I've seen it in action through, through our program and a couple other programs, but I've seen it in action where I've been able to get a kid that was looking at, had three felonies on his back, looking at jail time, uh, going through the process of talking and speaking to prosecutors and making a deal where all the uh, uh, felonies get dropped down to misdemeanors with no jail time. So this kid don't got to go through adult life with three felonies laying on their back. Now they get a chance to be restored and have real justice in their life and stay on the right track. And now the kid is doing great. I can name a 
bunch of kids with that scenario. A kid that had four um, felonies and was going to be auto decline and charged as an adult, being able to work with prosecutors and get that pushed back down into the juvenile system so the kid don't got to go do prison time with grown men and then get all four of the felonies deferred out of the system so he's doing deferred prosecution. Right, staying on the right track, going to college right now. So at the end of the day, that's restorative justice to me, and that's what it looks like to me. If we put, a, if we can put a system in place to keep repeating these actions, keep, keep this process, have an official process. Restorative justice comes first. Mm-hmm. Anything punitive comes as a last result. Yeah, yeah. As you as you share that example too, and uh, you know, I'm reminded of of like another piece that. I don't know, just coming up for me right now, but like, how can we restore young people's faith that, that there's hope, like there's reason to show up tomorrow. And for, you know, a lot of the guys that I'm working with at the high school level, it seems like, you know, some of the conversations I have with them, you know, I see them in the hallway, where are you going? I'm going to the office. I'm getting suspended, you know, and, Mm. you know, for me, just like the defeat in that process and whether this is a young person looking at, you know, juvenile time or time in the pen or, or whatever it is, you know, how can we restore faith in our young people, which, you know, historically have always been like the, the cultural regenerator, right? The people bringing that vitality and new ideas and vision to the to the village. Um, how do we restore their faith that there's even a reason to try, you know? <laughs> and like, for me, that's so important. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm looking at some of these, these youth and I'm like, gosh, man, I don't know how you show up every day. Like, you're so strong. Like, you've been through so much. Mm. Every time you try, you know, you just get, you get slapped with the same thing. And, uh-huh. and you know, if nothing more, like, are we willing to, to take a risk and do something new and, and, you know, drop back into that circle space that we know have, has historically been very effective at this and say, yeah, let's restore their faith that there's, there's actually hope for the future, that they're not just going to get treated like, you know, treated like a lesser person or, uh, or I'll say not even a human. Um, because I think that's what a lot of, what a lot of people are facing these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, first, um, when you when you're when you're saying this and asking me this question and you're saying this to me, I the first thing I think is it's it's it's, a, it's the adults that have to restore that. We have to fix ourselves <laughs> before so we can give these kids hope, right? Um, we're the ones that run the schools. We're the ones that run the systems. We're the ones that run, and we're the ones snatching hope from them by by continuing the same. Um, system by by perpetuating the same system that doesn't work and that doesn't do anything but push that issue of not having hope down their down their throat. We just they just have to accept there's no hope. So I mean, like I got there's a kid. How do you suspend a kid or expel a kid from school for skipping too much school? <laughs> that right. just that's just retarded to me, right? How do you? Suspend a kid because he's late too many times. She's late too many times, so you're going to kick them out. What the hell does that make? Does that make sense? But that's the way the system operates. It's operated like that so long that we perpetuate it and we accept it and we say, well, there's nothing else we can do. Hmm. So what needs to go to what we, what we need to do is not just think about how do we restore hope into these young people. It's how do we restore the old people, old, young, older people, the grown-ups? How do we restore them and, and show them that that's not how we should operate? We should operate with giving hope and opportunity. 
giving second, third, fourth, and fifth chances. Right? So here is where I'm at. Hope comes, and here's another thing. The, the, the real time, when I see real hope in these kids' eyes is when I expose them to something new. When I took a group of young men, down, young men to Louisville, Kentucky, to a big convention, they had really never been nowhere. I, like, literally never been on a plane. Only one of them been on a plane, really. Right? I take them and get them on a plane. Just getting going through the airport and getting on a plane was exciting. Being on a plane was exciting. I'm like, dang, these cats are, like, not 20 years old, 21 years old. We get down to Louisville, Kentucky, they're, they're exploring and seeing things. And then what really hit them is when they seen a room of 300-plus black men and black and brown people in one room all doing something positive for each other. All there out of love and hope and ambition and, and just ready to do something successful and change the world. The energy that they seen, that gave these young people hope. They were energized. They, they were already moving towards the right track of changing their lives. But when they got down there, it just made it, their eyes. It was just exposure to something they'd never seen before. Right now, I, I, another way I want to plant some hope is I plan on taking up to 20 kids, me and a group of other men, plan on taking up to 20-plus kids on a black college tour. The, we're going to go, we're going to catch a plane, fly down south, get some vans, drive through the south, and go to Grambling and Southern and Florida a and I mean, just Morehouse and all these, Clark, and just hit all these colleges where they get to see a whole bunch of black and brown people going to college, getting degrees, trying to make their lives better and do something positive because most of these kids only see themselves when they're in the streets with a bunch of gang banging or in jail when they see a mass of black people or at a concert. Smoking and drinking and acting a fool in a club, right? In a courtroom, they don't see themselves in a positive light. So that I, that's the kind of thing that gives hope to the demographic of young people that I work with. But with that example you gave about the young man walking down the hall saying, yeah, "I'm getting ready to go get suspended," why should he feel like that? What he should be saying is, "I'm going down here to talk to Mr. So and So or to talk to Mrs. So and So." about my actions and what I've been doing and why I'm doing it. Mm. That yep. will give that kid hope. That kid's going to go, he's not, he don't just drop his hand and like, well, I'm suspended again. Now he's going down to the office and go, I got to sit down and, this, you know, I, I got a little hope that maybe I can get some help. Because they don't know my dad been beating the hell out of my mama all night. I've been up all night trying to keep my mom from getting her ass kicked. I, I haven't been able to sleep for a week almost because my dad been coming home drunk every night. He's hit me twice this week, you know? And now I come into class, and then my teacher yells at me to get off my cell phone. And I snap back at her because I'm frustrated and angry and tired. Now I'm getting expelled because I said, F you. But all they heard was, F you, you're out of the school, suspended. Now I'm, I'm scared because i got to be home all day now, and my dad's going to kill me. Why, why don't we know that? Why don't we know what's going on? What's wrong with us? You know, it's, it's ridiculous, man. As much as I know that that example that you just gave is, is you know, representative of real stories, it's like I, I'm smiling right now, not because I'm happy, but because it's, as you said, it's stupid and frustrating how, how much 
what you just shared is actually just playing out every day. Um, you know, what the, the behavior that ends up triggering these, these punitive measures is, is never really explored, never given a space. And, you know, on one level, I, I can say what's wrong with us. My answer to that is that it's, it's, it's easier to just get them out of our face as adults. Mm. Yeah, right. We know it doesn't work. I think we're smart enough to say, yeah, we know that for a kid who's late or already missing school, expelling that kid is not the solution, but it gets them out of our way. It lets us, you know, be in class with the the good kids or the kids who, you know, that they're not they're not going through the the trenches every day, and it's more convenient, right? And so, you know, in a, in a nutshell, like yeah, it's, it's, it, we we designed a we designed a system that, that really favors convenience, and mm. you know, it it takes it takes a lot of courage for people to be willing to like sit in the fire and actually hear a story from a young person who's going through hell, and be like, oh, you know what? saying fuck you to a teacher, that makes a lot of sense. You know, mm-hmm. like I could totally see why that came out. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. gosh, man, can I give you, can I give you a, one, a, one more example? So what I did was I, I at this alternative school here in Kent, Kent, Washington, it's one it's supposed to be one of the worst schools or whatever. Right. But those kids are wonderful kids. It's a wonderful school, wonderful staff. And I've been working at this school. I'm contracted there to do work. I've been doing circles there. And so I started working with the young men and working with the young women and doing these circles. And then they started asking me to do work with the teachers and the staff. I started taking them through some workshops and doing some cultural training with them and, and blah, blah, blah. So um, the kids, what I did was I took the young men and I took the, a group of the teachers and I brought them together in a circle. So some of the teachers that gave a lot of referrals were in a circle. A lot of the kids that were getting all the referrals were in a circle. And we brought them into a circle. And what we did was, what I did was I started started talking, having, you know, going through the circle process and asking them these deep-rooted questions. And the dynamics of the circle, within an hour, the whole room is in tears. I had to take a break so they can embrace and hug each other because the way the, the, the way the circle went was all of a sudden the kids got to find out that Mrs. Johnson was going through hell because her dad died in stage four cancer right before her face in a hospital bed in her living room. And she's trying to take care of him and care for him. They, 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 they find out Mr. Thompson has a son that is on drugs and been in and out of rehab so many times he's scared he's going to kill himself on heroin. He finds out that Mrs. Jones, her, 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 her uh, little brother, killed himself because he was a, you know, and so you just find, then the, the teachers find out that Tommy seen his friend get killed on the way to school last year, and it haunts him every day when he comes to school. He sometimes, it's right, he just hates coming to school. You know, but, well, and another kid, his dad been beating the hell out of him for two years. And then another kid, my mom and dad got divorced, and, and my mom's depressed, and she started doing drugs. So now all of a sudden you find out. All these personal things. And so now the teachers go from saying you're, you're such a, a bad student or you're disruptive or you're this and that. It's not just saying you're so brave. I don't know how you come to school every day. That's like you were just saying. These kids, like you were just saying to me, these kids are brave. Like, I, never, I don't know how you get up and do this every day. How do you go through what you go through every day? You know, and then the kids are saying, wow, Mrs. Johnson, I didn't know that teachers have problems like this. I didn't know you were going through that. I'm sorry for talking to you the way I did. I didn't know you were stressed out and going through, you know. And now all of a sudden empathy is being placed in the middle of, of the room and not anger or hate or frustration. And it changes the dynamics of the way they interact with each other. 
So now when they see each other walking down the hallway, it's like, how you doing today? You doing good? Yeah, I'm doing good. How are you today? Are you doing better? Yeah, you know what I'm saying? So now it becomes, it changes the dynamics of how they operate with each other, man. And that's what we need to do, bro. We need to start putting things, we, we, it's just, it's a whole, it's a lot of work to be done. Just put it that way. This is a whole lot of work to be done, man. Yes, it is. <clears throat> Thank you for that story. That's a beautiful story, you know. Uh, I, I myself am a teacher, and I see it happen so frequently where teachers are jumping to conclusions or assumptions about a student, a bad student you quoted, and I hear that all the time. And and I know kids are often equally as guilty of making judgments about their teachers. Um, mm-hmm. And it really, it's all about relationship, and sitting in circle yeah. is such a key way to do that, to build that relationship, to open up those yeah. channels of communication, and really build an understanding of one another, and that's how we can move forward. Uh, yes. It's such a powerful thing when you can see, when you've seen it done well. Um, you know, Dom, I want to be mindful of your time. It is Friday evening here, but I've got one one final question, and we'll we'll leave on an optimistic one here. So I'm curious, if you had a million dollars to spend on youth in your community, what would you do with it? First of all, I would get a facility. I have to get a facility. I'm I'm renting out office space in in this building, but I only have office space. I have access to the whole building, but I need somewhere where these kids can drop in any time and feel safe and feel, you know what I mean? I I just want to be able to have 15 kids. If I could, like, I literally have to stop it from happening because I don't have the room. It's not my office. You know, I only have a small space. I want to just overrun the building, but I just want where parents can drop in, kids can drop in. I would just find a nice big office space, and I would make sure that I had at least three or four um, rooms with a couple of bunk beds in them where kids could stay overnight that don't have nowhere to sleep. Because most of my kids end up out here homeless, sleeping in cars, and I have to, I've been working. So far, in, just in the last three weeks, I've gotten help. Three kids get their own apartments. Two kids together and one kid on his own by plugging them with the right people and navigating it and then getting them internships and jobs and helping them fill out the athletic. So, I mean, we're, but we're constantly trying to make sure these kids have a, a safe space to sleep and they're not sleeping in the car, sleeping, trying to find somewhere to sleep on somebody's couch every night and very unstable. It's hard to get a kid to change their life when they don't know where they're going to sleep or eat at. Mm-hmm. But um, that's one of the things I would do. I would get a nice facility where at least I had, you know, three rooms with three offices, even if it was offices where I could use them as bunk beds and bedrooms. I just, I need somewhere for kids to sleep and I need somewhere to have a nice office and I need a conference room. And so I would use uh, some of that money for that. And then the other money I would use to uh, take the kids through job training and pay them bigger stipends. Right now we go after grants to be able to pay these kids stipends. So we're working with kibbles and bits. Kibbles and bits we get, we try to pay the stipends so they don't have to go steal, rob. You know, I mean, who knows how many people didn't get a gun put to their head or to their face or, or stores get robbed or whoever didn't get jacked because we're making sure these kids got money to eat with, make sure they can helping them put gas in their cars, the ones that, that were able to get cars or making sure they got internships so we get them, take them through job training take them through leadership development and through that process that they're going through the circle process to go through the healing and going through the leadership development and going through the job training and go through that. And we're looking for internships and jobs to place on that. Well, they're going through that training. They need to be able to still survive. I don't need them out here selling dope and robbing people. So I would put money in their pocket to make sure they didn't have to go do that. I'm, matter of fact, I just paid a hundred dollars a day for a kid to get his driver's license reinstated because we're plugging them with a job, a, a parks and recreation job, starting at $21 an hour. So he can't do it unless he got his license. So 
He had a bunch of tickets. He owed thousands of dollars. I called this, this organization that can navigate the system, and she said, okay, give me $100. I'll get his license back in a week, and he just has to pay $25 a month. So he pays off his debt. Cool. Got it done today. I would use money for that, bro. And, and maybe maybe I would be able to pay myself a few dollars because <laughs> I ain't been paid in over a month. I haven't had a check in my I got a check, bro. I'm struggling here, man. So maybe I could pay myself a couple of bucks and to pay some bills with. And I got four kids in college right now. My kids, I got four of my own children in college right now, all at the same time. You know, so it's. A... Mm. And I would, I would. Hold on, I'm not done. One more thing. <laughs> then I would hire two more full-time staff from the grant money that I just got. I hired. I'm hiring three full-time staff and one part-time staff. And so I would hire two more full-time staff on there. My goal is to have 10 full We're growing fast, man. We're growing fast. Mm. Big visions, brother. Just like you said, if it's if it's too big to take it on yourself, then it's the right size. And I feel honored to just be working alongside you. You know, so much of what you, you. so much of what you've initiated in your community is you know, very much in line with what Alex and I are hoping to hoping to and actually doing here on Bashan. And the fact that we're, you know, a, a short ferry ride away and, and you know, we, we have set in motion some plans to get some cross-cultural exchange, get some of our guys over to sit with your guys and get some of your guys yeah. out and kind of experience the, the woods and sit around a fire and, you know, yeah. some, of, some of these dreams too, like, yeah, this summer, you know, let's do an entrepreneurship workshop. Let's get yeah. Let's get some real practical skills, um, you know, for, for these young people. And as much as we need that healing, that soft skill work too, being able to sit in circle and be vulnerable and work with our emotions, let's face it. Like, we need hard skills too. Like, we need to learn how to make money. Like, we need to learn how to pay yeah. the bills. We need to learn how to do the stuff that's required to operate in this system. And, you know, yeah. if we're not looking at the big picture, I think we're we're really missing a piece of that. So I hear you doing that. I see you doing that in a really, really amazing way and want to, just you know keep keep honoring you for for showing up as, as you do and you know that to that piece about maybe earning a little bit of money yourself it's something that both Alex and I I think can relate to you know doing doing what we do on a volunteer basis for as long as we have is something that you know I would do a hundred times over you know I'll walk down that beach and keep throwing starfish um just like mm-hmm. you said and mm-hmm. you know I feel in my heart that that you know we live in a this place King County that's waking up you know, we have administrators and a justice system and, you know, grant money available. And, and I believe that, you know, as time goes on, we're going to wake up to the need, um, the need to, to really invest in our youth in these, these types of programs. And it's not going to be weird. You know, it's not going to be a weird profession for people to say, yeah, like I'm a professional youth mentor. Like I run mentoring programs and I earn a decent living. Like I'm not raking in dough, but like, yeah, like I'm comfortable. And that's yeah. that's part of my dream, too, is that, yeah, those of us who've committed ourselves to service in this way, you know, we get to live a decent life, too. And that doesn't yeah. seem too unreasonable to me at all. No, no. And I agree 100 percent, bro. I agree. I, I just want to thank you guys for having the heart and compassion to do what you guys do. I mean, it's it's, it's a hard task and a, and a hard road to go down. But I, that's why I know, you know, your heart got to be into it. And, and you guys are living a lifestyle. It's not a not a volunteer job or it's not a just a hot I mean this is a lifestyle that you guys are living that we that we all live and so I respect what you guys do I respect your heart and I just I honor the fact that you guys were willing to come and really want to partner and and do this cross-cultural 
um, circle, and I, I'm just excited, man, about our partnership, and I'm looking forward to it, man. I, I need to be out in the woods somewhere in front of a fire <laughs> my damn self just to get away from the noise and, the, and being all this, all this hectic craziness that I deal with every day. Mm-hmm. Well, there's always a space in our fire for you, brother, and let's just uh, let's keep the communication channels open. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. For any of our listeners out there that want to know more about Community Passageways, I want to encourage you guys to take a look at their website. It's communitypassageways.org. And again, they are based out of Seattle. Uh, Dominique, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Right Ways Radio, hosted by Journeymen. Thanks again for joining us. If you like what you heard, subscribe via iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio. And remember to leave us your feedback, and please give us a rating. Find us online at www.journeymen.us. So there's a young man sitting in Green Hill, juvenile penitentiary. Um, he's serving. Um, he's he's served he's serving his time. Up to, so he's been there for a couple of years, a year and a half or two. But he's been in and out of the, penitent, the, the penitentiary since, I mean, in and out of juvie since he was 11 years old. Trauma, you know, all kind of, the background is just hor- horrific. I got a phone call today from um, somebody that works in the prosecuting attorney's office. And he was saying to me, man, if you had things in place and you could have, you had somewhere to put them, where he wouldn't be in the community and he could be somewhere safe where for his own safety and he could, you know, blah, blah. And I was just like, wow. I started thinking about you guys. So I started thinking it would be so awesome if we could finally get something like this off the ground. I started wondering how many kids could we literally pull out of the system that could get a second chance at life? Second chance at life. Second chance at life. Second chance at life. Thank <laughs> you.